Gmail also had a reckoning back then in the early 2010s. A lot of personal communication was moving into instant messaging and social networks. Obviously, this is the world we're living in today. Then it was kind of new. And we were thinking, how can we make Gmail still engaging? We were looking for ideas. I was in charge of the inbox of Gmail in the desktop or parts of the desktop. And I noticed that in my inbox, I was very lazy. I didn't clean up a lot of the transactional emails, the social notifications. Back then, Facebook notifications filled people's inboxes and the promotions, the ads, the groupons, all of that. And they were actually being inflated the more these things became popular. So people's inboxes were exploding. At least mine was with this garbage. But I was too lazy to clean it up. So I was thought, wouldn't it be more engaging if Gmail just automatically organized the inbox? Welcome to another episode of Dreams with Deadlines. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, And today we're delving deep into the realm of product management with our special guest, Itamar Galad, the author of the groundbreaking book, Evidence Guided, creating high-impact products in the face of uncertainty. Here are a few things we talked about. Evidence-guided product management, the after model, and the common mistakes with OKRs. Stay tuned for an enriching conversation that promises to expand your understanding of evidence-guided product management and help you steer clear of common industry mistakes. And if you're eager to delve even deeper into these concepts, be sure to check out Itamar's latest book. Finally, we wrap up with our signature quick-fire questions. Let's jump in. Itamar, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. We're going to talk about this book that has yet to be released, and I have a copy of right in front of me, actually. Evidence Guided, Creating High-Impact Products in the Face of Uncertainty by yours truly. Now, you open the book by sharing the story of Google+. I first learned about Google Plus from my brother-in-law. He was a huge fan, a massive advocate. And as we know how the story progressed, it wasn't so pretty. Can you actually just share that story and why you decided to lead the book with it? So for those who are not familiar, Google Plus was Google's attempt to essentially copy Facebook because at the time, this was early 2010s, a lot of people spend a lot of time with Facebook and Facebook was growing at a rate we've never seen in any other company. And that worried the Google executives very much because Facebook could offer advertising and can offer targeted advertising, something that Google cannot do quite as well. And so there was a sense of emergency. The ground is falling from under our feet. We need to do something. We need to do something big. So Google decided to launch its own version of Facebook called Google Plus. And that was a massive project across all of Google. Teams were ripped apart and joined into Google Plus, and it was a very secretive project. And after a very strong sprint of development, Google Plus was launched, and it was very successful initially. A lot of people, especially Google fans, adopted it, like your brother, I assume. And we loved it. We Googlers really loved it. And the next phase was to integrate Google Plus with every other Google product. So search, YouTube, Maps, and Gmail, where I was working at the time. And my very first project in Gmail was let's integrate Gmail and Google Plus. So that's where I'm leading in the story. Now, we were, were very optimistic and we built a bunch of features that took a couple of years actually to complete all of them. But the first ones launched fairly quickly. And we expected to mix email with social to be the first social email client in a sense. And it turned out no one actually needed this. And it turns out most people actually didn't love it at all that we're mixing social with personal, except for this minority of Google lovers or enthusiasts. And as much as we tried to iterate, nothing good happened to, for this particular feature. People just didn't like it and didn't use it. And sadly, the same happened for Google+. So the company iterated on the product for years and tried to promote it in every way possible, but it turned out people didn't need another Facebook. So Google+, 
gradually declined, and eventually it was broken off into Google Photos and a bunch of other things, and it was shut down in 2019, nine years after being launched. Oh! Yeah, it was a big, big um, failure for Google, and it's actually even bigger, because in the intervening time, in the meantime, much smaller companies like WhatsApp, like Instagram, like Snapchat, came up with much smaller things that actually people really wanted and it threatened Facebook a lot more than Google Plus ever did. So it just comes to show you that we missed a huge opportunity. Google was in the perfect place to do exactly these things. Oh my goodness, what a story. I mean, I think it makes sense if you think about it because you lead with this idea that a lot of companies have this plan and execute approach for pretty much everything, right? And you're like, hold up. Opinion-based development is terrible. Don't do it. There's a better way. You call this the planning waterfall, which honestly, if you read out loud, you're like, okay, but why wouldn't it make sense to have a process of multiple nested levels from strategy, roadmap, product, feature, so on and so forth? Why is the planning waterfall not great? Right. So it's kind of the best practice. I don't know. We inherited this from, I don't know, uh, leading companies in the 1980s or whatever. Let's do our multi-year strategy and then do our yearly roadmap and then do our quarterly planning and let's go and do projects and features and backlogs. And it all kind of funnels down. It's all connected. It all cascades down. It makes sense. It makes us feel good that if we're doing all this planning, if a bunch of really smart people who are knowledgeable about the industry, knowledgeable about the user, sit in a room and discuss these things. There's some data also thrown in. There's some evidence in there in the discussion. And we agree what we need to do in each one of these levels. Then we are greatly increasing the odds that we will create value for our customers and for our business. Turns out it's not the case at all. There are multiple problems. One is that there's so much uncertainty in all of these things. There are so many moving parts in the market, in the product, in the technology, in our own companies, you know, there's a lot of politics and stuff. It's almost impossible to predict that an idea will be successful in the next few years. I mean, the Google executives are, are some of the smartest people in the industry, some of the most successful people in the industry, and they failed big time. And they failed not just on this project, on other ones too. They succeeded in some, but they failed on others. Which just comes to show you can't really predict. And worse, our decision processes that are based on consensus and, you know, highest person opinion and a bunch of other things. We all live in this world, kind of amplify the problem. So there are statistics to show that out of the ideas we think are good, when you test them, at best one in three actually test and show any measurable improvement. And if you do a backwards analysis of the features you've launched, you will find that most of them are hardly being used or a very small percentage actually got, get all the usage and some are never used. So you can remove them today, no one will actually complain. So the, all of those are outcomes of this planning waterfall. And so here's this book about evidence-guided development. Tell us simply what is evidence-guided development and why are you so passionate to dedicate, I don't even know how many years of your life, and I don't know how many hours of your life you have spent and how many times your family was like, can we talk to you? You're writing this book about evidence-guided development. <laughs> Can you, what is it and why are you so passionate about getting this across to people? All right. So evidence-guided development is a bit like evidence-based. I don't like evidence-based because it makes people think that you need to stop thinking. You don't have room for judgment. You just look at the data and it's like this very analytical thing. And of course, that's not what it is. Second thing, it's not something I invented at all. It's been the foundation of product discovery, of design thinking, of lean startup, all the methodologies we know are evidence-guided. I just try to create a meta framework that kind of puts a structure around all these things. Not that they are lacking in structure. There are a lot of good frameworks out there. This is just the one that worked for me. And that's the reason for this book. I've seen so many product organizations struggle with this so much, and I struggled with it for years. So when I found in Google something that actually worked, 
that actually managed to combine evidence with opinions that actually worked in the hierarchy, because Google has a hierarchy too. Don't, don't think it's, it's not the case. I was like, Eureka, I have to share this with the world. And that's how the book came about. And it took four and a half years officially to write it, but I was thinking about this years before. Well, let's get in a bit more then. The first time I found you online, you were writing about this GIST model. And I was like, ooh, this sounds cool. What is this? Maybe you can share that with folks who are not familiar with your work or familiar with this model, because this seems to be kind of a very foundational piece around this experience of evidence-guided development that you want to share and you've written about in this book. What is the GIST model? How does it work? And why should we use this? So when I left Google and I started consulting and I started trying to help companies embrace the new world that I was so excited about, I realized something important. They actually knew. All of them knew. It wasn't like a, new, a big shock that you need to test, that you need to experiment, that you need to iterate and you need to change. But so few of them were able to make progress and to actually change the way they work. So I took a step back and I thought about this. How can I help them? And based on my experiences at Google, I identified four areas of change, which are I present them as a layered model or a tree model. At the top, there are goals, which are the things we're trying to achieve, essentially. Outcomes, obviously, not building stuff, but driving changes in the behavior of our customers and the success of our business. Below them are ideas, and every goal should have a number of ideas tested against it because most ideas actually don't work. We have the statistics. So you have all these ideas, and mm -hmm. what you don't want to do is to build them around, you know, engineering milestones. Let's build layer one, let's build layer two, let's integrate them, let's do the API. What you want to build them around are steps. It's a word I kind of used. It's not very common in the industry. Steps are a bit like what people call experiments. It's something that enables you to build a little bit, to move forward on the scope, but also to learn. So at the end of each step, we are testing the idea, usually with users, but sometimes just on paper, and we're learning something. We're getting evidence, and based on that, we're kind of deciding what to do next with the idea. Sometimes we pivot it, but sometimes we park it. And then the steps themselves break into tasks. Tasks are the things that we are managing today in Kanban or in um, Jira, you know, the things Scrum are built around in Kanban. And those are the things that your team is mostly very focused on. So every engineering team I meet right now are very into the rituals and the stand-ups and moving the task along. What we're trying to do is not change any of that, but to connect it to the steps, to the ideas, to the goals, make sure that the team is involved in all areas of the G-Stack, not just the tasks, and they're working with a lot of context so they know what they need to do. So this is the GIST model in a nutshell. This is the gist of the GIST model. Exactly, I just had to say it. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about the tabbed inbox because you opened this book with a, oh, we did so much stuff. And clearly, Google Plus was not received very well after nine years of pain, apparently. It was eventually killed. But you worked on the tabbed inbox, which is a happy story, and you weave this into the GIST model. Maybe you can provide an example of the tabbed inbox and how the GIST model helped you establish an evidence-based approach to launching something that honestly maybe didn't have as much fanfare, but where it was clearly being used by a lot of people. All right. So the background story is that Gmail also had a reckoning back then in the early 2010s. A lot of personal communication was moving into instant messaging and social networks. Obviously, this is the world we're living in today. Then it was new. And we were thinking, how can we make Gmail still engaging, still getting people to use it? And we were looking for ideas. I was in charge of the inbox of Gmail in the desktop or parts of the desktop. And... I noticed that in my inbox, I was very lazy. I didn't clean up a lot of the transactional emails, the social notifications. Back then, Facebook were sending, Facebook were the number one sender back then. Facebook notifications filled people's inboxes and the promotions, you know, the ads, the Groupons, all of that. And they were actually being inflated the more these things became popular. 
So people's inboxes were exploding, or at least mine was, with this garbage. But I was too lazy to clean it up. So I thought, wouldn't it be more engaging if Gmail just automatically organized the inbox? That was the whole idea. I thought it will do a digest on the side. It tells you, you know, you also got these promotions and these notifications. And when people really wanted, they could click into them and, and see what's going on. That was the idea. And I got super excited about my idea. And I came to my team and I said, all right, let's build this. And to my managers and everyone's like, mm, we don't think so. And why? Because we don't think, A, that casual users actually get as much email as you think. We have some statistics. We don't think that this is going to succeed because people like the inbox the way it is, like it was launched in the 2004. We have some evidence. We tried to launch a bunch of other inboxes. No one uses them. So why your idea? And basically, they were pushing back also on the goal. Like I didn't come up with a goal. I came up with an idea. Mm. And that's a very mm. common anti-pattern. I wanted to create a goal that basically said, let's launch Itamar's inbox, <laughs> which is... A, for me, it sounded like the perfect goal, but understandably, my teammates and my managers were not as excited. This is called an output goal. It's very common in the, in the industry. If I was senior in another company, I would get my way and we would launch my idiotic idea. But in this case, what we did is we stepped back and we asked, what is actually the goal? And we did some analysis, we did some research, we did data research and we did qualitative research. And we proved to ourselves and to the managers that actually inbox clutter, as it's known, this phenomenon of having a lot of this stuff is actually very common and very painful. We found people with hundreds of thousands of unread messages, tens of thousands, hundreds. These people had no way to manage their inbox. They were just flooded and they were not happy. So that gave us an idea for a goal. And the goal was allow casual users who are not proficient in managing their inbox to just interact with the emails they want to interact with. And we had some metrics about our accuracy of predicting these things and our level of engagement of, of the users and the level of satisfaction. And that became the OKR and it guided us throughout this project for the next 14 months. And that was a really good move by my team to force me to do this. After that, we considered a bunch of ideas and we tested them. And one idea tested extremely well. We showed people the inbox, but with tabs. And the tabs had names, the labels were primary, notifications, later we changed it to updates, socials and promotions. And this whole thing was a sham. It was a Wizard of Oz experiment. We actually moved people's messages, just the subject and sender behind their backs. Like when they came in, they agreed, they signed on some contract. And while we were being, they were being interviewed, we actually modified their inbox and showed them the new inbox and allowed them to go to click. This was a prototype. It didn't really work except for the click. And then they saw their messages. And out of 12 people we test, tested this with, 10 absolutely loved it and said, this is exactly what I need and when can I have it? And two said, this is not a good idea because I already know how to manage my inbox and they actually knew. And later on, I, re I realized that all of my colleagues and all of the tech press, and everything, were in the two, the two out of 12. All of these people didn't get why this was a good idea, but the majority of Gmail users actually were like me, lazy, and didn't clean their in inbox. So for these people, we developed the, the inbox and through a series of steps. We tested on ourselves first, the team, then dog food, then more external tests, more usability tests, longitudinal tests, a bunch of things, A-B experiments. Well, we didn't quite do A-B, but we did do controlled uh, launches. And eventually, after a very long period, we developed something that was completely different from my original idea, but it is the tabbed inbox. You can find it today in your, in your inbox in Gmail, where it splits the email, the inbox, into primary, promotions, social, and there are a few optional categories. If you hate it, it's because you're one of these 10 to 15% of people who actually know how to, and you don't need it. I didn't develop this for you. If you love it, you're actually in the target audience. So that's how this story came about. I love that so much, in part because it really showcases 
the battle I think that happens with a lot of product teams and product managers and definitely people who are in the industry, especially tech, where we're like, but we're like the customer too. And you're like, wait a second, <laughs> let's go find out. You may not be the majority. Let's go see. To that end, you mentioned that you had a lot of ideas, and this is a part of your the framework that you're sharing here, the gist. There's a lot of prioritization strategies. There's a lot of different ways to think about prioritizing ideas. You cut through a lot of this, and you have this thing called the confidence kind of level meter. And this is something that I think you're very known for also. Can you talk through, like, what is this? How can someone be thinking about prioritization of ideas and developing a level of confidence so that you don't end up expending all of this effort building something to your point that will never see the light of day. No one will use, which is what we want to avoid. How horrible is that where we spend our lives doing something thinking it's meaningful only to find out it didn't matter. No one cared. Like that's terrible, but you want to prevent people from feeling that way. So you offer this framework. Can you talk through it with us? Of course. So the core principle here is that we want to invest in ideas in an incremental fashion. We want to invest in them more and more as we gain more confidence in them. And most ideas start with low confidence because we just don't know that much. They feel right to us, but the level of evidence is low. And as we test them, as we evaluate them and test them, we gain more evidence. And that evidence, if it's supportive of what we believe this idea can produce, we can raise a level of confidence. So this is the theory. And everyone, I think, agree with this theory, or at least intuitively understands it. Not everyone practices it, but but what I found is that there's a big confusion about what's, be, what's strong confidence or strong evidence and what's weak evidence. And a lot of people feel that if the top boss, the senior VP says, this is a good idea, that's high confidence. That's exactly what we need to do. So sometimes just people confuse opinions with strong evidence. Opinions are always weak evidence. Even if the entire industry now is shouting machine learning, generative machine learning, that doesn't mean that your particular idea for generative machine learning is strong. It might fail. In fact, I would argue there are thousands of ideas being invented and implemented right now around machine learning that are going to fail because they're not going to create the impact we expect. So in order to help people organize the sort of evidence that they are encountering and put weights on them, I created the confidence meter. Maybe it's best if I show it and, yeah, and we can share this with the people who are just listening to this podcast and they can look at it later. So I'll just project from my screen. All right. So this is the confidence meter. So basically it works like a thermometer. It goes from very low confidence, which is the blue area, all the way to high confidence, which is the red area. If you're colorblind, it's going clockwise. And basically the blue area or the low confidence area is all about opinions. It could be your own self-conviction. You're a very smart guy or smart girl. You have a lot of experience. You don't have a crystal ball. You don't know. You made a really shiny pitch deck, doesn't give you a lot of credit either because it's pretty easy to create these pitch decks for everything. You found thematic support. We talked about this right now. Even if it's blockchain, even if it's AR, VR, doesn't mean it's a good idea. Next, we move into more kind of systematic reviews and estimates. So you review it with other people inside your company or with some expert. Even if they say, all say yeah, it's a great idea and it's exactly going to be as impactful as you think, that doesn't prove a lot because they're using their own opinions and judgment. So you need to go much further than that. Then you can do estimates on paper. And I teach this in my workshops, how to estimate, how to evaluate how much an idea can actually influence the key metric we're trying to improve. You can use funnels, these other models. And that gives you a little bit of confidence, but you see the numbers, they're kind of growing very slowly. It's a logarithmic scale. And by now we reached 0.5. You did your pitch deck, you convinced everyone, everyone's saying great idea. On paper, it looks good. 0.5 out of 10. That's the maximum you can get at this point. What you need to do is go out and collect data. So it could be anecdotal data, which is just a small subset of information. You talk to a few customers and some of them said, yeah, this is a good idea or I want this. One competitor has this. 
By the way, in many companies, if one competitor, the leading competitor has it and everyone thinks it's a good idea, that's it. Validation done. Let's move on into implementation. Not in this case. I'm sorry, you need to move further into market data. Market data comes from surveys, from fake door tests, from deep analysis of your data, of your available data, of wide competitive analysis. That's just to see if the market actually gives you signals that there is demand for this idea. Mm. That still leaves you in kind of medium-low confidence. To go into medium-high confidence, you need to start testing your idea, which means building a version of it, putting it in front of customers and measuring the results. And that's basically the first time you start really understanding the impact and the cost of your idea. And for most ideas, you need to get to this level. If you're just doing a small design tweak or you're changing the order of the settings or whatever, all right, you don't need to go that far. Some things you can just launch or launch and test in a batch. But for anything that has a little bit of more risk or a little bit more weight, like it's expensive to build or medium expensive, you want to go into testing. And that's a very important principle that a lot of companies keep. Well, some companies test everything. And then the point is not to tell you, yeah, it's good to launch it or not. It's just to drive discussion, just to make people stop after each one of these steps and ask themselves, what does it mean? We learned that fewer people than we expected actually get excited about this feature, but those that do are, ver are loving it. Should we continue? Should we pivot it? This process, like any other good process in the world, I hope it's good, is there to create a shared understanding of the reality and to drive good discussion. It's not to tell you definitively you need to reach confidence level three and then you can launch. That's not the way it works. We're going to take a short break. You are listening to Dreams with Deadlines, the podcast that brings you real stories of trials and victories in business, brought to you by Quantive. Quantive is a strategy execution platform that helps organizations create greater strategic agility and excel at execution. With more than 2,000 customers, Quantive helps companies close the gap between strategy and execution to achieve their best possible. And now, back to the show. This has been super helpful, Inamar. Thank you for that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about chapter two. We're not going to give away the whole book because that's ridiculous. Go get it when it launches. I seriously think you should. But two is my jam because we talk about goals and goal setting a lot here at Dreams and Deadlines. And you were the first one where I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Evidence-guided goals. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> But you mentioned that OKRs, you've mentioned OKRs already on this podcast episode, but they're not mandatory in GIST. That's correct. But you show how you can weave that into the framework. Firstly, why do you decide that the goals could be not necessarily tied to any particular framework, that it isn't mandatory? I was just curious about that. So goals, the concept of goals just means we need to decide where we want to end up. And we just need to find ways to define what that endpoint is and how do we reach there and then just systematically work towards this. So if you go to, I don't know, Toyota production system, they had goals too. They were like, they're in their own system about through Kaizen getting to an end state, but they didn't use OKRs. So OKRs okay. is not the only way to represent goals. And it's a big uh, point of confusion. People always ask me, what's the difference between goals and OKRs? OKR is one way to capture goals, to express goals. And there's a process about managing the goals that comes with OKRs that you can use. So what I'm saying, use goals. You don't, you're not forced to use OKRs. I'm talking a lot about OKRs because I come from Google and it's kind of in our blood to use OKRs. I'm also talking about OKRs because they're very popular in the industry. But I will warn you that OKRs can be absolutely horrible. If you use them the wrong way, which a lot of companies do, if you abuse them, if you overuse them, if you misuse them, they will amplify the problems in your company. So I'm not promoting OKRs per se, I'm promoting good goals. That's my key point here. Fair points, fair points. How do we choose the most important outcomes though? Because that's the whole point of goals, whether you use OKRs or not. 
we want to focus on the most important outcomes because that will help inform what we're going to go do about it, what we'll focus on at any given point in time. How do we actually choose that? So again, this is one of these questions that you need to use a combination of your judgment and also a more analytical approach or metrics in this case. And there's a balance between these two things. You need to have both. And that's why in OKRs, for example, there are objectives, which are the qualitative expressions of where we want to end up. And there are the metrics that say, in the next goal cycle, where do we want to be? Or what do we want to achieve in order? What are the outcomes that we want to show that we are moving in that direction? That's the whole idea. If you go all the way to the top of the company, the top objective of the company has a name, it's the mission. The mission is basically the company's most important objective. And you can affix to it two key results, or at least that's what I suggest. One is the nostal metric that measures the total amount of value you deliver to the market. And the other is the top business metric, which is the total amount of value you capture from the market. It can be revenue, it could be, I don't know, number of active customers, customer lifetime value, whatever it is, just pick one. Because picking is the hard part for a lot of managers. They want everything. Pick one. So this, these three things together create an OKR that is the mission of the company, both in a qualitative and a quantitative way. So that's a model. That's one model. And it's based on a very familiar model called the value exchange loop that says every organization in order to succeed needs to do these two things, deliver value and capture value from the market and to the market. So that's a start. That's the model I suggest. There are other models out there, by the way. That's not the only one. What I suggest doing next is taking these two top level metrics and breaking them into what I call metrics trees or metrics graphs. A tree is a sort of graph, but sometimes they're not really trees because at the branches or the leaves, you find things that are connected to multiple branches. So it's a graph. It just breaks down how you can influence these top level metrics, which are hard to change and slow to change with submetrics, or sometimes they're called input metrics, that you can more readily influence. And if you do this enough, you get to a level where some submetrics are very actionable. And you can give those to teams and say, your job, the onboarding team, is to shorten the onboarding time. Why? Because we found that this actually improves the metrics above, and you go up, this will improve our two most important metrics. So in that way, every team knows how they're contributing to the bigger goal and can have a way to measure the impact of their ideas on the mission of the company, in a sense. So that's, again, it's a model. It's not the only one. You can use funnels, you can use flywheels. There's also the model. This is just one I'm presenting in the book in order to encourage you to adopt this approach. Now, I know I talk a lot about this, but why is this important? Because if you don't define in a very clear way what is success, it's very hard to measure evidence. It's very hard to measure where, whether or not you're moving in the right direction because anyone can come with their idea and say, you know what's a great idea? Mine. And here's why. And they change the goals. And people do this all the time. So having very clear and very concise goals every quarter and every year really helps deflect this problem and all suppress this problem of people pulling you in every direction. You can fall back to your team's goals or your group goals or your company goals and says, great idea, but right now this is the thing we're most focused on. And this is what we need to show evidence that we're actually moving towards. Otherwise, we will be very defocused. So, sorry. Obviously, it's not going to solve all your political problems, but it's a very important mode to build in order to have a more defensible position, I would say. A lot of people, I think, when they think about metric trees, these you know nested metrics or even OKRs, let's say maybe they decided that they would cascade or loosely couple them, there are concerns around hyper-localization and optimization around those localized metrics. And for a product team, that could result in a very fragmented experience because each of these teams are doing a thing or a series of ideas, like executing a series of these ideas and broken them down into steps. And they're really localizing optimization without maybe a, a bigger picture. Can you shed some light on how to be thinking about goal setting 
in a way that does break apart so that teams can attach themselves to it, find meaning in their work, be able to gather that evidence without necessarily sacrificing the overall experience on behalf of a user? I know that's a big question, but that is something that I think often product managers are wrestling with is to what degree are we focusing so much on these goals and what do we sacrifice as a result? And is there a way to mitigate maybe anti-patterns or bad practices if we apply OKRs incorrectly as a result? Like, what are your thoughts on... where do we find the balance, Itamar? That's a really good question. I think it can operate or you can mitigate this on multiple levels. The first is that the goals need to be derived in some way or influenced by the company level goals, which reflect the strategy. According to the theory, at least, that Andy Grove developed or the process that Andy Grove developed in Intel at the time when they invented OKR, There's a reason that company-level goals or maybe also business unit goals are yearly because they're supposed to reflect the strategy. They're supposed to reflect the bigger things in life rather than quarterly, like let's make a little bit more money, let's move a few more users to engage. The leaders, when they create OKRs, they need to really push the company in the big direction. And some of these things need to trickle down. And when people create their own goals, they shouldn't just say, all right, these are the key metrics that my team has right now assigned to us. And sometimes they should say this. I will explain the difference. But right now, there's a message from the top that emerging markets is super important or that AR is super important or that for some reason we need to focus on the educational market. And they need to start thinking of goals and ideas that are aligned with the company's strategy. So that's one way to break apart from this like my bubble of metrics that I need to optimize for. When is it right to do this optimization? When you're in growth, sometimes you're just like, you have an unoptimized product and you're just trying to move all the things, all the needles in order to move to a much better performing product. So in that case, it's okay for teams individually to try to do things. Even then it's a bit risky. Another trick is to decide what you measure impact on. I teach ICE as well, Sean Alice's ICE impact confidence and ease. So when you evaluate ideas, you need to come up with numbers or assessments for these things. It could be high impact, medium impact, or low impact, or you could put numbers on them. So impact on what? What is your key metric? What is the target metric you're trying to improve? So you could choose a low level metric in the tree, and that's usually the easier option. But then you might fall into the trap of local optimization and you might actually mess up someone else's metric. So it's a better option in my mind to try to climb up the tree and measure all your ideas against the NOSTA metric of your business unit or your company. It's harder. It's a harder calculation, a harder assessment, but it will align you better with the company and with the other teams. And I've seen cases where teams actually implemented this and then team A realized it's better to work on the ideas of team B because that's the highest impact approach. That's the, they will gain more impact this way. So it kind of encourages collaboration a little bit. So those are just two techniques how to avoid local optimization, which is a real risk, I agree with you. Thanks so much for kind of sharing your point of view on that because I think a lot of times when people fall in the trap of you know, well, we're localizing so much, the framework is at fault. And that's not true. It is the application or the thinking behind the framework. And there are ways to use these frameworks, I believe, to its fullest advantage. But we need to be thinking, like not falling into the trap of like, well, this is what the framework says, and I'm going to do it by the book. And then as a result, we're going to get great results. You got to be thinking of how does this fit? in how you work and how you think about your work. So thanks for providing more color there. I will just add to that. A lot of times when I see teams very locally optimizing, it's because they didn't get the bigger context. I agree. They, it's just something as simple as like, they just don't see the bigger picture. And so therefore they can't attach themselves to it. They have nothing to tether to. Right. Right. So, uh, so executives, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about choosing steps because... 
I mean, I don't want to give everything away, but I think this is kind of something that we spend a lot of time on, right? How do we break this stuff down? You mentioned in your book about how Marty Kagan lists four areas of assumptions and risk value, usability, feasibility, viability. We talk about this stuff. Something that you share, I think, which is helpful is like the AFTER model. Maybe we can talk about the acronym AFTER model. Like what is this? How does this help us define our steps? Again, the problem that I saw is that companies know that they need to test and they need to experiment, but they're kind of caught up in a model that says experiments equals A-B experiments or experiments equals customer interviews and usability tests or experiments means that or the other. And even the word experiments was a bit confusing. That's why I stopped using it and I moved into steps. So what I wanted to do is just put on one page all the different types of validation techniques you might use when you're evaluating and testing an idea. So that's the after model. It stands for assessment, fact-finding, test, experiments, and release results. That's it. Nothing new here, really. I didn't invent any of this. I just put it in one graph. Basically, assessment is about how you very quickly, you look at an idea very quickly, in a few minutes, you come to a conclusion whether or not it's one of your candidates, the ones you want to investigate further, or you're willing to park it. And if you run through a lot of ideas, you need to develop this capability. So you could ask a simple question, does it align with the goals? Does it look like it's going to contribute to a key metric? If not, let's put it aside for now. You can do business modeling, and that could mean developing, as I said, a funnel analysis or a full business model canvas, depending on the size of the idea. You can do ICE analysis, which is asking the three questions. What is the impact? What is the confidence? What is the ease? Which is kind of the opposite of effort. You can do assumption mapping, a technique developed by David J. Bland, really useful to surface some of these risks that Monty Kagan talks about. And you can do stakeholder reviews or expert reviews or team reviews. You, you can talk one-on-one -on -one with people and ask them, what do you think about this idea? That's a little bit more than a few minutes, but... All of these things basically don't generate new data, but they give you a better understanding of the idea. And sometimes that's enough to park an idea and say, okay, sounded good initially, but knowing what I know now, I'm willing to put it down there. And they do move you in this evidence confidence meter, if you notice. They are moving you to this area of the 0 0.5 that I mentioned. Next part is the fact-finding, and that's where you start digging for data. And usually these two things go hand in hand. You, so you go into your logs and into your data analysis system and you find data. You run surveys, you do competitive analysis, you interview customers, or you do field research. Now, these two last ones are expensive, and usually it's good not just to do them on demand, but to keep doing them in an ongoing basis, like interview three to five customers every week, if you can. And then you'll have data lying around. You can look back, reflect back on some of these conversations, and already you can judge some of these ideas or evaluate them based on these past discussions. So that's, again, you haven't built anything just yet. You're just collecting data. Again, a lot of ideas can be parked at this level. If you still like this idea, still think it's impactful and it's relatively easy to build or the ratio of the two is good enough, you can move into tests. But of course, the early tests are not about building this thing, but about faking it completely. It's about fake it before you make it. You do a fake door test or also known as smoke test, Wizard of Oz, concierge, usability test. If you don't know all of the terminology, don't worry, it's explained in my book. So. Here you go, a little commercial plug, but you should know them. These are all extremely powerful techniques that allows you to very quickly learn whether or not there is a demand in the market without actually putting any toll on your developers. You can run a survey on your own, or you can do a, a usability test sometimes on your own just with paper mockups. It's doable. If the idea still looks good, you go into mid-level steps, which are about early adopter programs, alphas, longitudinal studies, and fish food. Fish food is team testing. It's just you build for the team if you are in the target audience. What's common to all of this is it's a very rough and non-scalable, non-polished version of the product. It doesn't have all the scenarios. It doesn't scale. But it's good enough to do this test, and it is based on code. 
And if those things work, sometimes you want to go ahead and do a late stage test, like a lab, which is an optional feature in the settings that some users can test, a beta, a preview, or a dog food, which is company-wide testing. And these things tend to be much more polished, much more complete. Then there's a different category of tests, which are, I call experiments. In the industry, all of this is called experiments, but I think of experiments the way data scientists think about them. It's a test that has a control element. It's a controlled test. So basically, A-B experiments or A-B-N experiments where we test multiple versions of the variable or multivariate where we test multiple, both the color of the button and the label. These are all experiments for me. And then even the release itself is an experiment. You can launch to 30% and stop and look at another 30% sample from your audience and check if the metrics you expect to move actually are working. And you can gradually increase the launch until you launch completely, but then you can keep on testing. You just check if the metrics you think are improving are actually improving. And only then you have 100% confidence that this was a good idea. Sorry, this is just the way I think about these things. So that's the after model. Uh, this book is going to be so good for the folks who are familiar with all of these frameworks out there, or maybe not, and to have more tools in their toolkit and the way to be thinking about them cohesively or coherently, which nobody really teaches you how to do product. You have to figure it out on your own or work with someone who's good at it, read a bunch of books and then figure out what works in practice. So it's really cool to see a book that kind of pulls all of it together. I hope that you all who are listening will pick it up. I endorse it. He's not paying me to say that. I think it's great. That said, we're going to launch into quickfire questions because I don't want to give the rest of the book away. Go get it. You ready for a quickfire? Sure. I feel like the first one's obvious, but maybe there, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. What is your dream with the deadline, Itamar? My dream with the deadline. My own personal goals, and, and I use the same model for myself. I think of impact. What can I give the market? And I think of what I want to get out of the market, which is pr pretty obvious because I'm uh, you know in this business of consulting and teaching. So I want recognition. I want people to read my stuff. I want people to follow, but it, I would be a terrible product person if that would be the thing that guides me. What I really want to achieve is to help product people bring evidence-guided thinking into their way of building products and make evidence-guided decisions, which I really believe will lead to eventually better products, higher value products, much more job satisfaction for the people involved. I, when I discovered evidence-guided in Google, I started enjoying the work a lot more than before. So that's something I wish for everyone. So trim or deadline, the concrete target, it's really about the number of people who will make decisions or evidence-guided decisions. And if I can reach out to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, that will make me extremely happy. I know it's not super measurable, but that's how I think about it. I think that's great. Okay, you do write a lot about OKRs. It is kind of a hot topic, especially among product managers. What do people get wrong about OKRs? That's a great question. And actually, even inside Google, not all OKRs are great. Uh, there's a lot of bad OKRs. I think some of common anti-patterns is one using output OKRs. So using the OKRs basically to capture a plan is the exact opposite of what the people who invented management by objectives and OKRs actually intended with this, for this to happen. And uh, regrettably, some books actually recommend this, but really what you need to capture in the OKRs are outcomes. If you put in there a plan, you're locking yourself into a plan, which is most likely going to be bad. And that creates a whole chain reaction of bad behavior inside the organization. Problem number two is doing too many. So uh, I say this a lot with managers. They don't want to commit. They want this, but they want this as well, and they want that, and they want everything, basically. And they feel that if they ask for these pies in the sky, if they push people to the limit, maybe they won't get everything, but they will get more. And it actually backfires because people say, yeah, 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 sure. And they don't commit. They think this whole thing is a charade. They don't trust the OKRs. They feel this is just a manager's game. And you get much less. I think good managers 
are extremely concise. They're saying, these are the three things we need to achieve in the company this year. Here are the goals attached to them. Very few key results. Let's go. That's what I want you guys to focus on. Everything else, a lot of stuff will happen anyway, even if you don't put it into the OKRs. So that's mistake number two. I can go on. There's dozens more. But I think those are the two biggest ones. So the book is about to come out. When can we expect that? The target date is September 20th. I'm doing my hardest. We're recording this in August. I'm doing my hardest that it will come it's September 20th. But at the worst, it will be a few days later or a week later. So end of September. Amazing. Last question. We're talking about your book, but I'm curious. I ask everyone, what would you say is the book that largely shaped how you think? Wow, that's a good one. I have to split it between two. They're both were so influential, and none of them will be a surprise. One was inspired by Marty Kagan, the granddaddy, the godfather of product management, I would say. And the other is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, which I think is slightly underappreciated and not talked about enough. Inspired is amazing. Everyone knows this. So I will not sell it anymore. If you haven't read it, go and read it if you're a product person. What Eric Ries did, he presented a lot of ideas that were brewing in the kind of entrepreneurial space, in the startup space, about how to not just do evidence-guided development, you know, build, measure, learn, MVPs, all this good stuff. Much of it, like OKRs, was somewhat subverted later on. But he also showed how business and product are actually two sides of the same coin. This was kind of the inception of the growth movement, what we now call product-led growth. And he and the, his contemporaries in the Lean movement showed, guys, you need to think about both of these things at the same time. You cannot just focus on tech, or you cannot just think of business as two separate things. They're actually intermarried. And he showed models how it works. And I think that was very important. This was very influential, and it changed my thinking and changed a lot of people's thinking. And we don't always give him the credit that I think is due for this contribution. I think they're both really great picks. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. It's been great having you, Itamar. Thank you very much for inviting me. This was a pleasure. And if you're interested in the book or just learning a little bit about it, just visit evidenceguided.com. That's the URL and you'll find all the information on how to obtain the book if you're interested. Excellent. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we invite you to join the Dreams with Deadlines community. Dreams with Deadlines is a global network of ambitious business leaders and innovators who are passionate about using OKRs and agile practices to build high-performing cultures, achieve bold goals, and influence our world for the better. Learn more and join us at dwd.community.